Hello, and welcome to How Have You Not Seen That? My name is Wilson. I'm Charles. And I'm Crossman. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about movies that we have lied about seeing in the past. This is about honesty and coming forward with the truth and <laughs> coming clean. Um, so the premise is that we all have movies that we have perhaps spoken the details about when asked if we've seen them. We may want them to have appeared more cultured, more cool, more with it, more informed. Um, and in so doing, been dishonest about uh, movies that we have consumed in the past. And here we admit what those movies are, we watch them, and then we talk about it. This week we watched Paul Thomas Anderson's 2012 movie, The Master, one of my all-time favorites, that Crossman has somehow avoided. So, Crossman, tell us about The Master. Pretty complicated, um, <laughs> but it, it starts with Joaquin Phoenix in sort of the waning days of World War II. He's clearly a very disturbed individual, most likely has PTSD and probably a bunch of other like trauma from his childhood. And he makes it back stateside and finds a job as a photographer in what appears to be like a JCPenney. Uh, he's an alcoholic, so that doesn't work out. <laughs> he's also a, a bit of a moonshiner. Um, yeah. So it's the only thing he does well. In his next job, he finds like a work as like a farmhand, and um, while he's doing that, he's been moonshining, and he accidentally poisons an older older guy, and then has to run away from that. Then just kind of like stows away on a boat, and the boat happens to be moving headquarters for this cult that's being run by Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is very reminiscent of uh, Scientology because they do things like have like recorded therapy sessions where they like admit very dark things and they call it processing. Yeah, processing, yeah. which yeah, similar to auditing and Scientology. Yes, and a lot of pseudoscience. Like a, yeah. yeah, a lot of stuff about like trauma from past lives and the sort of like spirits of like former beings that like inhabit your body, which is like central tenet of uh, Scientology. He kind of travels with the cult and really uh, begins to former relationship with the Philip Seymour Hoffman character that it seems to be kind of like a father-son relationship. They're like very, very close. And he's even like closer than some of like his like actual children. He's very much like brought in brought into the fold of of uh, of, of the cult. A bunch of stuff happens. They <laughs> they um, end up in Philadelphia where they take a residence in like this rich woman's house who's played by Laura Dern. Amy Adams is the cult leader's wife. She seems to be like one of the controlling figures of, of the cult. And then time sort of skips ahead. There's like a lot of un, like it's an unclear timeline, but we get to the point where the cult leader is going to release his uh, second book. The book kind of flops and then like time kind of skips ahead again and and the cult is now based out of england and seems to have like kind of found some footing as like a private school of some sort and it's at this point that our main character kind of like falls out of the cult and just like finds finds a girlfriend and or at least a hookup yeah and yeah. Then the, <laughs> the movie kind of ends there yeah yeah, <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> and Philip Seymour Hoffman sings to Joaquin Phoenix for a little while. Yeah, yeah. in kind of like a touching moment. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, the, I was very glad you picked this movie because um, I, I I remember very vividly seeing this in the theater for the first time back in 2012. I saw it on opening weekend. I went back like three days later to watch it again. Like I've seen this movie a lot of times. It hit me really hard the first time I watched it, and kind of does every single time since then. This is one of one of my all time favorites. It's easily my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. What do you think of this one, Charles? 
Well, you predicted I wouldn't like it, and I think you know me pretty yeah. well by this point, because <laughs> I definitely did not like this one. So, like, <laughs> I've seen some of the other Paul Thomas Anderson flicks. Like, I saw, I mean, we saw um, there will be Boogie Nights. Be Blood. And Boogie Nights. Um, Boogie Nights I liked. Uh, there Will Be Blood, not as much. And uh, Phantom Thread, which I thought was kind of okay. Um, so, like, this one tracks most closely to me with Phantom Thread and... There will be blood in that they kind of revolve around one very like large character, like larger than life sort of character, right? So you have like Daniel Day Lewis characters in the other films, and you have the Philip Seymour Hoffman character uh, in this one, right? And so there's this they they're this kind of magnetic personality. They're all different flavors of this kind of personality, right? Um, just I don't know something about this film didn't draw me in at all like the other ones at least had um like a few like more distinctive scenes that i could like kind of grasp onto and enjoy and appreciate whereas this one it just it didn't really feel like a whole lot was happening throughout the entire movie um or like i don't know i just didn't get into the plot in general so i just i don't see it yeah i mean it it, it i can certainly see why people would read this as like an impenetrable movie like there's a, it doesn't follow traditional plotting or even like traditional character arcs in a lot of ways. Like there is a very loose connection from one event to the next sometimes. Um, yeah, so and, like in that way it felt <clears throat> frustrating to me because sure. I was always wondering what the purpose of the scene we were watching was mm-hmm. um, or like what the movie was trying to say or what it was building up to or anything like that, right? It didn't feel like any of the characters really changed all that much. Um, it didn't feel like anything that was happening really mattered, and so I just I started to lose interest and just kind of slipped out of it. Yeah, that was that was my fear <laughs> when we went into this one. Uh, how about you, Crossman? How did this one land? I I liked it. It was pretty different yeah. from what I was expecting. Oh, that's okay. So that's interesting. What were yeah. you expecting? So in my mind, this was like a very deep and dark dive into like the formulation of Scientology, and it it's not that. No. I mean, this is about Scientology in the way, same way that there will be blood is about oil. Yeah, it's like yeah. Not well, really about maybe that. it's like yeah. maybe. I mean, it it does get into the sort of like the notion that one is just like making things up as they go. Yeah, they explicitly which, state that several times. Yeah. yeah, but it's not as dark as I was expecting. Like I thought it was going to like lead to. The murder or the like sort of mass suicide of the cult or Mm -hmm. that there would be like a very like bad and violent kind of falling out between the two main characters yeah there aren't very many sequences of violence here and then that is that is not where it goes in in a way it almost felt like it was like kind of promoted like at least for these people the cult like seemed to make sense in the movie like Mm -hmm. it was actually like good for the joaquin phoenix character because like it gave him like grounding and something to believe in and he kind of for a time was able to like break his alcoholism and for a lot of the people in the call it seemed to like bring them like a lot of meaning throughout Mm -hmm. throughout the movie which i'm I'm sure that's like how actual cults are but (laughs) um but this movie is not like a critique of Scientology. Yeah, and, and it's not like a, a, it's not a critique, but it's also not like saying go be a Scientologist, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it's not promoting it. But I'm sorry, finish with that. But so what ended like it, 
it ends on like a surprisingly positive note where he's able to like leave the cult and you know start to put his life together it seems like it seems like that's where it's like the meaning of the film is at the end where he's like has things under control a little bit more and finds connection with somebody that he was like not able to do earlier in the film because that's kind of why he like ends up in the cult is he's like unable to like exist in humanity because yeah. of the world the trauma that he experienced in in the war yeah yeah i think that that's pretty close to my read in terms of just like what happens to Joaquin phoenix to, to freddie Quan in this movie yeah i think that is basically what it's saying and to me that yeah it, it is like a surprisingly positive movie especially since this was his follow-up to the all we blood which, which is like the opposite yeah, super message downer. of like <laughs> yeah. how power kind of corrupts and uh, you know, leads to mutual destruction. Mm-hmm. Here it seems to be the opposite where like the powerful in this film is actually like finding meaning between the characters and that leads to like their salvation. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. like being able to find a, a makeshift community. Which, and in this sense, it's like very similar to earlier uh, PTA movies, especially Boogie Nights and things like that, where it's about this uh, assembled family, right? Like it's this group that becomes family-like out of these these strays and misfits. You have the, the father-son, the surrogate father-son relationship, which is Elby Blood, Boogie Nights, Sydney, to a certain extent, uh, Magnolia. Like that is very common throughout his, his filmography and like kind of concludes here. This feels like the, the end of that part of his filmmaking. Um, and it, yeah, it does feel like a very positive, you know, yeah, uplifting kind of conclusion to the mm-hmm. to that thesis. Yeah, yeah. There's there's enough differences from Scientology that it, it doesn't seem to be like a pro Scientology no. message. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's too many characters that come right out and say like this is all bullshit. Yeah, for this to be a pro Scientology. But it movie. seems to say like they kind of reveal it a bit too. Yeah, yeah. And, but it seems to say like for some people, this like this makes sense. Yeah, or it, it doesn't matter. No. that it doesn't for a while, right? Like, that yeah. if, if you can find your own meaning here, if you can find something that actually does help you, it doesn't matter that it's false. It doesn't even matter that later on you realize that it's false. What you gained while you believed is still with you, Yeah. right? And it's still valuable. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that you see that in the Joaquin Phoenix character. You probably, like, you see a little bit in the Laura Dern character as well, where, like, she's a true believer, and she eventually kind of realizes, oh, wait, maybe not. This is kind of how a lot of things work, right? Like exorcisms and that sort of thing, right? Like the important part is sort of what I call flipping the switch in your brain, Mm -hmm. right? It's getting Mm -hmm. your brain to accept this new state, right? And however you get there, like, you know, doesn't necessarily matter as long as you get to that point, right? And so, like, I think what they do in this movie is, like, take a journey through their past to get them to forget their past trauma, Mm -hmm. right? And so as long as what he does works and gets you to be free from the past or at least get your brain to accept that you're no longer burdened by the past, then like, you know, it's effective. Right. It doesn't matter that he's framing it in the sense of like past lives. Yeah. Right. But it can still yeah. free for you of the trauma of World War Two. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the past lives thing is that like it it's almost like in the movie it kind of com- comes across as a way for people to just talk about like the trauma from earlier in their yeah. life. And because you can like avoid the embarrassment of like the actual events that you experience by speaking to something that like happened in a magical way to you. Right, or happened to yeah. somebody else who you knew really well. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is how, how it ends up working right. out. 
Yeah, and, and I, I think I, I like that about it. And like the, the larger scope metaphor here is that the national trauma that we experienced was, was World War II, right? And like the end of, of modernist innocence and things like that. And like that's what we're trying to cope with, right? Like and that and that to me is like what this movie is really about. It's like how does the country move past this trauma? How do we how do we cope with our national PTSD? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it has a clear answer to that, other than just saying you have to work at it and you have to approach it honestly, which is just like the thesis of therapy in general. Um, but I think that that is really what like the big ideas that this one of the big ideas that this movie is grappling with is that one. It's just like what do we do at this point in history? How do we move on as a people? And one of the interesting solutions that the cult kind of presents in like a non-obvious way is that they they don't seem to like they don't work right like or they they don't like participating in capital in, in like the normal sense mm-hmm. and <clears throat> so we have Joaquin Phoenix at the beginning of the movie where he's just like trying to hold down a, a normal job and he's because of his trauma is completely unable to like exist in that right. society where he just like attacks this guy for no reason yeah. like in the who looks course. suspiciously like Philip Seymour Hoffman but yes. yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so then he's able to join this society and the, they don't seem like, because they have like a, like a rich patron, they don't seem to like need to work. And that allows them to like focus on like the society itself, mm-hmm. yeah, which, and, which is an interesting and, and self-improvement itself. Right. Right. And yeah. And you can see like, the, like, like dealing with your trauma is like a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah. like the reason that Dodd, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, ends up in jail is fraud, right? Yeah. Like it's just <laughs> like he extracted money from someone other under false means, right? Like it's not anything bigger than that. And like so you have like this right on the edge of this movie, this idea that, you know, yeah, money is a concern, but that they're like just dodging it and they're like just staying outside of conventional society. Yeah. And and so like he wrote this book and it's like this giant tome and well, uh, towards the end of the movie, Joaquin Phoenix like is talking to the other character about what he thinks about the book, and he says he would chop it down to a pamphlet. It's like, well, you can't sell a pamphlet for $25, right? Like, yeah. He's writing a giant book because he needs more money, right? Like, he's coming up with more bullshit because he needs to fund this thing some more. <laughs> and, yeah, that's broad, and, yeah, it's false, but, like, sometimes you can get at something true via something false, and I think that that's what is going on here. Something yeah, and it you, seems to, like, support, like, dozens of people who... Right, who need it. Yeah. Well, where would Freddie Quell be without this? Yeah. Right. He'd, he'd be dead. He would have died. Like that's that's what happens. Like he, he would be a goner. Um, so yeah, I think that 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 is a good read of this movie, right? Like that it, it's about how you cope with things and like any means any means necessary, right? Or any means that work. Yeah. And the normalcy of just like finding a job and going in every day is like maybe not the correct solution to trauma. Like just kind of like burying it and like going into your job and doing your job is like maybe not the correct way of right because well, the, the, the thing we get at the beginning of this movie is like we we have all these ex-sailors after bj day uh, getting this lecture from some sort of commanding officer that says like oh now you can go and join society and you can start a business or you can go back to school or it's all just like capital oriented suggestions and freddie quell like doesn't have the tools to do that or doesn't have the tools to engage with that um and he, he's still like just so obsessed with sex and 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 alcohol and he, he he has that rorschach test at the beginning of the mm-hmm. of the movie and like all of his answers are like oh yeah that's 
two people fucking, right? Like every every single one of them yeah. is that. And he delivers it in such in this this nonchalant way that like he hasn't developed as a person enough to engage with society. And it's because of the trauma of World War II and also the trauma of capital. Um, so yeah. Yeah. What do we think about the uh, performances in this one? Like there's like two towering performances that hold this movie together with two of our I think greatest actors. One thing that kept me out of the movie was that I didn't really like the, the two main characters very much. Okay. And like obviously you don't have to like the characters to be drawn into a movie or for a movie to be good, but I felt like I like disliked them in a way that like didn't that made me not want to keep like exploring their story i just stopped caring mm-hmm. rather than like disliked them and wanted to find out more or something like that like you would with mm-hmm. like you know a daniel day lewis character um it's just it, it was like this weird phenomenon for me well first of all the the joaquin phoenix character freddie to me he just seemed like really annoying i guess and like someone who would want to immediately get away from if I were to meet them, he's right? kind of a psycho. Yeah, yeah, and like obviously this is on purpose, but it also meant that I don't want to see him on screen for two hours, and so that kind of drew me away from the movie, right? And on the other hand, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I, I've loved all of his performances, uh, and it's amazing the kind of range that he exhibits on screen. He plays so many different characters, but has such a like magnetism about him, right? So it was weird when I saw this performance because like in the first scene. Like I'm, imme- I'm immediately drawn into like his performance, right? Uh, it's yeah. it's like any other well, time Seymour I've seen Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman. Um, but when I think about it, like it started to feel kind of repetitive seeing the, the character throughout the movie, and that might be part of the point um, to like show what kind of person he is. But to me, it just felt like again kind of annoying, right? Repetitive, how? Like it was just kind of beating you over the head with the same character. Obviously, it is the same person, but like mm-hmm. it felt like, like I liken it to when you first see him hearing like a really sweet guitar riff for the first time. Okay. You're like, "This is awesome!" I want to hear it over and over. Time, yeah. But the fiftieth time, yeah, <laughs> he's, the, he's on screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the fiftieth time, I'm like, "It's this fucking riff again," and I'm so tired of it. And that's kind of how I felt. You know, it it felt like the same like attempt at being a huge character. I, over and over. I think what's challenging about the movie is that it doesn't feel like there's a character who represents the audience. Mm-hmm. Like it's difficult to identify with either of these characters, right? Because one is this kind of like dandy intellectual, and the other, Joaquin Phoenix, is this person who's like incredibly traumatized. Yeah, was, yeah, like a psychotic, violent maniac, Great alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. Because right, he um, would that he would be Freddie Quell would be our, our audience character, right. right? Like he's the one that we're following early on. Yeah. He's the one that has to have ideas about the cause, like introduced to him. Yeah, as we but do. The, like the depth of his trauma, unless you experience that, is very hard to relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the only person that maybe like the audience might be able to identify with is the his um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. The Jesse Plemons character. Yeah, who's just like, this is all bullshit. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah, I think I, the, the closest I got to relating to someone. He's just kind of like a hanger-on. 
Yeah. I think the closest I got was uh, the one dude who like just asks Philip Seymour Hoffman a bunch of questions and makes him angry. Oh yeah, the, the scientists. Yeah, yeah, John Moore. Yeah, yeah. John Moore, who, who ends up getting beat up by Freddie Quell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, yeah, this this guy this guy knows what's going on. Like, yeah, I like, like this guy. Well, I mean, that's a signal to the audience, right? Like yeah. that, that is that is PTA telling us, yes, you are not supposed to be taking this at face value. Yeah. yeah. It's right? kind of like, lampshading it. Right? right. Exactly. The, that that is him telling us that. The rest of the characters that are kind of mainstays in the film are like really true believers and it's hard to identify with them because we as the audience see how it's like silly mm-hmm. like the Rami Malek character is like totally true believer his wife slash uh, the daughter of the right. co-leader totally in it Laura Dern maybe questions it at the end the berry she definitely yeah. questions it at the end that, that was a great but little scene as opposed to Amy Adams who's like the sort of clear-eyed believer throughout she's probably the first believer on anybody yeah yeah if anything she believes it more than uh, philip seymour hoffman does yeah i think so yeah um so yeah it doesn't it doesn't feel like there's like a guiding hand throughout the film right i guess maybe maybe i was able to suit her in with with freddie quell better than other members of the audience um but for me like that was enough for me to get into it and i think that if if you're looking at something to Ground the audience. It's not any individual. It's not any one of these two characters. It's the relationship between the two characters. So that's what this movie's really about. Mm-hmm. It's about like how they relate to one another and how, like, Freddie stands in for like this this animalistic id, and Dodd is the the ego, like holding that together, and like how those how those relate to one another and how they're each a part of one another, right? Like there's still an animalistic part of the Dodd character, right? And there's still a part of Quell that is able to moderate his urges and that, that he eventually learns that. And I think that that's what holds this movie together for me is the two of them together rather than either one of them individually. I I, I was like a little, I kind of agree with Charles that the, the Hoffman character is uh, a little challenging to track with because he's, he's such a like fake, intellectual mm-hmm. he reminded me a lot of uh, Ron Burgundy actually <laughs> Will Ferrell. he was like a serious version of like a Will Ferrell character okay because the way he talks is the same where he's mm-hmm. like overly theatrical overly theatrical like very references that are like serious but ridiculous at mm-hmm. the same time and like poetic in a way that's like absurd, well, well, which he, is like very <laughs> reminded me a lot of. You Robert think Burgundy. he's like yeah. trying to show that he's learned? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at how he introduces himself. Oh, I'm a I'm a writer. I'm a theoretical theoretical physicist. I'm a philosopher. But most of all, I'm a man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. He's introduced <laughs> the same way that um, Ron Burgundy is too. Yeah. Like they're drinking like a, a hard drink at the it's, beginning, and that's and they're they're men. And, right. Yeah. Right. Well, and like he, <laughs> which is it was funny connection for me. Yeah, and yeah. Dad still yeah. gets these one-liners too. Yeah. Right. Because like his one one-liners aren't jokes, but they're things things like your memories aren't welcome, right? Which is meaningful within the movie, but it's still just very striking in the way that a one-liner would be striking, and it's something that he also clearly had prepared. Right? Like he has this this bank of phrases that he he has ready to to deliver and like get people with to, to manipulate people right yeah yeah to put it in the most negative sense <laughs> yes yeah. to manipulate people but there's some merit to that as well mm-hmm. like to say like your and your memories are not welcome right mm-hmm. like there there is something to to be said for that and there there is something to to take away from that that can help you and in fact did um help freddie i think i find dot compelling because you can 
very slowly and in a very minor way see him stop buying into his own bullshit, right? Like I think there are moments when he knows he's kind of like, like when he when he calls John Moore a pig fuck, right? Like that is to a point calculated, but to another point it isn't, and it's just him getting actually cornered and frustrated with it. Like when he's giving his speech at the end of the movie about like laughter is the cure to whatever their fucking problems are. Like he he you can see in Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance there that he knows that that's nonsense, right? Like the character knows that it's nonsense, and I think that y you can like tracking that and seeing how that tracks with him growing close, closer and caring more about Freddie as a person, and it, it, it's very moving to me, and like very effective for me. There's, they took an interesting jab at um, Mormonism kind of late in the movie, where they uh, they go out in the desert and they dig oh. up the box, and the box has the book in it. Yeah. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> All of a sudden, we're ducking on Mormons out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soft target right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bible fan fiction. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, you were you were correct about that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, and, and that's just it. So it's not just about Scientology, and it's not just about Mormonism. It's about you know the struggle between our animal instincts and our human instincts. It's yeah. synthesizing those things. It's how we deal with our post-war altered altered meaning of the world. I mean, what's interesting is that like at moments he's like very likable, like mm -hmm. uh, which is you know a cult leader thing. But like when he's on the boat and it's just like a normal wedding. That that seems like fun and like a good place to be. Mm -hmm. Like nothing's weird. They're just like having a wedding on a boat. It seems like well, he, very charming. He, he is talking about like lassoing dragons and wrestling them to the ground. <laughs> yeah, but it'd be like was that? that would be like a great person to like do a speech right. at a wedding. And it was like, fun and like yeah. Or late in the movie when he like jumps on a motorcycle and they just like drive in the flats right. out, out in Utah. Mm -hmm. and it's again like the Mormon reference. <laughs> yeah. Um but even there it was like Oh, this looks like fun. This is not like a weird cult thing. Like when they're not doing the like totally weird cult stuff, it's like, oh yeah, I could see like why people are. Yeah, this. this this would be a good time. Right, and part of yeah. that is that it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he's just a charismatic actor, and that's yeah. that's yeah. the story there. But part of it is also that that's how cult leaders work. The other moment is when um, he is doing the uh, a roving song, which is talk about a layered scene. Like that one, is, uh, there's a lot of ways to read that one, but. It's when he's dancing around in the kitchen and one character is playing the piano and you see it from Freddie's perspective and now all of a sudden all the women are naked. <laughs> but like he's having, like the Dodd character is like, is having fun in that scene and being actually charming. Yeah. Right, as he's singing the song. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. Like there's a reason people are following this guy. Yeah, but again, this is like the opposite of what I was expecting on this movie where I was expecting to like go like layers and layers deeper and things were gonna get weird and like, the recordings of Freddy were going to come back to like really bite him and they were going to like publicly like out him because like that's what happens in Scientology is sure. that like it's, they it's record blackmail. like all this blackmail on you and then they have you saying it later mm -hmm. and that's how you like get stuck in Scientology um, but here it does come back but they don't use it to like oust him from the call it's more just like a part of some like later exercise right well, it, it pays off in a weird way that I wasn't expecting. Right, because it, yeah. it's it, you are left wondering how much Dodd actually wants to help these people. Right, again, yeah. like how much of his own bullshit is he buying? Is he is he really just trying to extract money from rich old ladies, use their yachts as much as he can, hang out in their apartments? It, or is he trying to rescue guys like Freddy? Right, because it seems, a, like as the movie progresses, mm -hmm. it seems a lot closer to him trying to rescue 
people like Freddy, which is what happens, and it works, and he's successful. He did seem to be increasingly perturbed by like his continuing failure to fix Freddy. Mm-hmm. So it, it does give the impression like he actually does care, but I don't know how much of that is him caring for Freddy versus his own ego and his like, you know, overconfidence in, in his ability to do that. Right, and and it might be both. Right, like oh, yeah. I, I think it, it's entirely possible that you, you're just correct on both readings. That like he can, he cares about Freddy, but he also cares about his own ability to do the thing that he wants to do, um, which is why that last scene of them together in England is so striking and to me just really so moving. Um, do you want to talk about that one for a minute? Yeah. So he kind of like he promises Freddy like a cure for his ailments. Well, he tells him that he remembers where they met because throughout the movie he kept saying, "Oh, I've, I've met you somewhere. We have to remember where we've met before." And he tells Freddy that he remembers where it was. Yeah, and it, it turns out it's like in a past life, and they like mm-hmm. live in Paris, Paris, yeah. and they're and part they're, of like the resistance, and so. they're sending messages. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then he sort of like gives him like an ultimatum, where it's like you can you can say and we'll have you, but you have to be like be a believer, or you can leave, and we'll you know, you're not welcome back. We'll be mortal enemies. If yes. we ever meet again, we'll be mortal enemies. And um, and then he sings him a song. <laughs> Slow Boat to China. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like, it's so out of nowhere. Right? I remember I remember very clearly watching that in the theater the first time and just like being totally bamboozled by it and stunned by it. But it still, for me, absolutely works. It's just, it, it, it gets me every single time I watch it. Um, it's is, not the ending I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah. not the ending anybody was expecting. And then Freddy seems like kind of okay. And what's nice is that he like leaves and he's like, like obviously things aren't perfect because like he goes back to drinking, but mm-hmm. he does seem to be able to like exist in society. Well, it, yeah. it bookends with the beginning of the film so well. Because yeah. what you have at the beginning of the film is he is like siphoning alcohol out of uh, torpedo. torpedoes yeah. and like he's running paint thinner through loaves of bread and shit like that in order to make his booze and then he also at the very very beginning you have that bit on the beach with the sand woman like they've crafted a woman shaped object out of sand and he mimics se- Freddie mimics sex with this sand woman while mm. all of his comrades surround him and then later on when they're gone he like cuddles up next to her as the sun sets and it's like he doesn't know how to talk to women right like he doesn't know how to treat women like people he has to get this replacement for a woman that is this makeshift object he has to perform his virility for the people around him and what he really wants is for a woman to comfort him because he was abandoned by his former love back in Massachusetts and because he has this peculiar relationship with his aunt that he admits to later on right like he doesn't he's never be able he was never able to develop a healthy and confident sexual identity. Cut to the end of the movie, what we have is him not drinking out of a torpedo. He just ordered a beer at a bar like a normal fucking person. And <laughs> he meets an actual woman, right? And the first thing we hear him say to her is, what's your name? Right? He, which is what you say to a person when you're meeting them. Right? Although, didn't he ask her, like, as part of, like, the processing script? Right. He's kind of learned this right through that kind of roundabout he, way. He went to therapy, he gained tools, and now he's applying those tools in his real life. Right, and like, the, right. To, to me, that's that's an, an arc for a character. And what he has learned in therapy is that, yeah, he can just like be around people, he can sit in a bar and have a drink like a normal person, 
he can meet somebody that he likes, he can treat them like a person and they can both have a good time together. And sometimes that's just where you need to get. Like sometimes that's the arc of the character. And to me, like it, it, they, they illustrate it visually so well with the contrast between the torpedo and the beer, the contrast between the sand woman and the actual woman. And that's just such a, a, a simple and pure and beautiful moment for me. Like I, I, I really like that about this movie. I, I guess it, they actually end the movie with the sand woman being washed away. Yeah, yeah, even better. Which like, that's right. They makes do cut more back sense to it. now that you explained that. Yeah, they do cut back to it, right? Like he doesn't need that anymore. That's not what his life. He, he can now just talk to people. He has he has those tools, um, and and I, I like that a lot about it. Yeah, that works well. Yeah, because like to me, the movie felt more bleak than that. Really? Um, just I mean, like I didn't get too into it because so I felt like I lost <laughs> a lot of it, right? But. It gave me the feeling like at the end where he was still attached to the cause and that's why he was still processing okay. this woman and that was the only way he knew how to interact with people uh, because he went through the cause. Mm -hmm. And like that scene at the very end where the sand woman washed away, it felt like he was like, it kind of illustrated the futility of his like desires in a way because like, you know, he put all of his he he like grew attached to the sand woman and it just gets washed away right and he's like always trying to pursue that and it keeps getting like taken away from him by the ocean right yeah yeah because yeah how, how i see it is that it was taken away because he doesn't need it anymore yeah right like yeah the, that it's it's gone because he is he has let go of it and that that's healthy and that that that's good and i read that as, as something positive but also that he like remembers it yeah that mm -hmm. like he knows like where where he came from and like why he was attracted to it, like why he needed that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that, that that's true as well, right? Like that's why he he you see him go and try to seek out Doris towards the the end of the movie before he sees Dot again in England, right? And he sees like she's moved on, like she has two kids now. She's yeah, but he's able to like react in like a healthy way, right? Where exactly, he can, like give it up. Yeah, he, he's not you know starting fights. You know, he's not going and getting drunk. He's not you know, doing all the, the self-destructive behavior that he engaged in. It was pride. meaningful yeah. that he said that he was glad that she was happy. Yeah. That was yeah. a big thing. And you could tell it was hard for him to say, but also that he basically meant it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's yeah, significant. Part of the training of, like, Rami Malek, like, when he's, like, face-to-face -face with Malek, mm -hmm. and he's saying, like, the worst things from his past, it seems mm -hmm. to be, like, you need to be able to, like, sort of admit these things, and then and then it's okay. And yeah. if, you're, if you can say those things without reacting to them, then you've moved on at that yeah. point. Yeah, and that, that yeah. was one of my, the best laughs in the movie where like he, like the Walking Phoenix character is just fucking furious and was like, say your name again, say it one more time. And I said, Doris, just like doesn't miss a beat, just like right on <laughs> that yeah. one, like always say it one more time. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and like repetition is so important for all the, these applications and the processing that they do so much, but it's about just doing the thing over and over and over again and identifying the small differences in, in each iteration that you have, right? So like the the that processing scene at the beginning when um, Dot and Quell are being recorded and he has to like not blink and he has to answer the, the questions immediately. When he has his infractions and he has to start over, his answers change, right? So like the, the repetition is valuable, right? Because mm -hmm. your first instinct when you're talking about your trauma is to lie about it. Like your first instinct is to hide from it and to move away from it. Yeah. And when you when you can force the person to concentrate on something else, which is not blinking and answering quickly, you can start to get at truth. You can start to get at something honest a little bit more easily. Because you start answering from your subconscious. Yes. Yeah, I did notice that 
through the questioning process, they would ask you about specific details from before or later on just mm -hmm. to like suss out a lie. Because <laughs> yeah. like, you know, if you make something up, it's hard to remember what you made up mm -hmm. later. Yeah, I, I think that that's part of it as well. Same thing like you have what probably the strangest sequence in the movie is when he's going back and forth from the window to the wall. Um, and, <laughs> and having to describe what he feels and, and lying about it each time, right? Such that, like, what is truth, what, what he is perceiving or what he thinks he's perceiving, like, starts to lose, you know, concrete meaning, right? Like, what, what, you're, what you think you are understanding might not be true, right? And, like, what, you, what you're lying to yourself about might, might not be true either. And so once you can see that all of this is a lie, once you find something that's honest, and once you find something that's truthful, um, it, it becomes clearer. Like well, did he end up is. actually finding anything through the Not through that directly, but, it, but it's an, it, it's, it is an exercise, right? Like it's preparing you for later truth, right? And, and so it's so ironic in a sense that this, Dodd is constantly talking about the search for truth, the, re, the return to our perfect, or to our natural state of perfect, things like that through all of this deception, this lies, this, these things that look like utter bullshit, but in a sense, he's not wrong, right? In a sense, it is a, a search for truth, and in, in a sense, like, you do, like, use all this artifice to strike at something that is, that is concrete and meaningful and accurate. Um, and that, that is such a, a, a complex message for me, and, like, it, it's, it's really interesting that PTA would get to that point. And to find that within Scientology, um, I, I, I found that moving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're making a face, Crossman. Well, it's in, well, like all the Scientology documentaries have like come out since this. Oh, yeah, obviously, all... actual Scientology is nonsense. Yeah. but that he was able to take <laughs> and like horrible, and we should remove it from the earth. Yeah, clearly, but that he was able to take that kernel. Yeah. and like grow it into something else about like how you how we really can strike at truth. Yeah. Right? Like, and what, what mechanisms are useful for that? Because this does mimic so many real life things, not in therapy, yes, but also like in, in actor workshops, right? Like that back and forth wall thing, like he's lifting that from like acting exercises. Like that's where a lot of this stuff is coming from. And acting is so much about it getting a tr to a truth within yourself. Like that's how actors are taught. That's what the method is. Mm -hmm. And I, in, in it, like that he's able to make that kind of connections and connect that to like, post-war trauma and national level trauma as well as like surrogate father-son relationships and mending your views of women from a very unhealthy place like that it's, it's such a complete film in that sense yeah. so that is a lot of what i think about the master <laughs> <laughs> um, any closing thoughts anything we haven't touched on uh, the soundtrack is weird it's, soundtrack's great yeah thanks it's just for like a bunch of music and it kind of floats in and out of scenes, and yeah, was, especially at the beginning of the movie, like that you have like this almost arrhythmic kind of percussion effect that mimics the sound design in the yeah. It, it doesn't seem as thoughtful as the There Will Be Blood soundtrack, which is like just like straight up like a horror mm. film soundtrack. It did feel but, like they were going for the same kind of vibe, though. Yeah, but like not as dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it felt like a. The it was weird. The it was like offsetting. Yeah, um, but it just kind of like plays constantly for most of the movie. Yeah, which is again very typical of PTA. Like he he uses his soundtracks a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he just like Phantom Thread did that. Boogie Nights did that, even though it was all licensed. Yeah, like, that's just very much a PTA thing, mm -hmm. um, and and kind of of the era as well. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, but yeah, I thought that was interesting. It's, yeah. it's beautifully shot too. It's, it's a like, it's seventy millimeter and he uses every inch of it, every millimeter of it. <laughs> I, I was going to remark that I do love PTA's visual style. Um, yeah, I see a, a very consistent style between this and there'll be blood and phantom thread there's a certain like coloration that he uses that is very unique to his movies i'm not sure exactly how to describe it but it's very distinct it feels almost like um there's like one of the instagram filters that kind of makes the entire picture a little more gray across the entire photo more gray really okay. a little gray like there's like a little i forget the name of it or like what the effect is called okay um but there's that kind of filtery feeling over it all because what i find most striking about visually about this movie specifically is how clear these images are right like i mean that's because he shot it on 70 millimeter but it, it's like he really draws out every color available here. And it's a lot of like blues and whites. Like you have that shot of the ocean, the ocean at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film. Uh, like, and he, he's, he's drawing out that palette a lot, but it's, it feels like it's in the, this extra real lighting, mm -hmm. right? Like it's a natural light and then a little bit more. And to me, it, it gives this film this, an immediacy. Right, that I think makes it a little bit harder to place in time. Mm -hmm. Like I think you see other movies that are set in the 50s and they will have more orange lighting and more yellow lighting and things like that. And this movie doesn't do this. He, 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 this is shot like it, it takes place in 2012, yeah. which is when it was made. And it, that's what I find so, so striking about it and that he uses so often uses the 70 millimeters to have extreme close-ups. Like we get a very close look at Joaquin Phoenix's face in many moments in this movie, like every little crag, mm -hmm. every wrinkle. Same thing with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like we're getting a, a like so much is playing on these actors' faces, um, and that's what he's using these this film for. And he ran that back again in, in Phantom Thread. Yeah, I, I think I see like a there's a kind of like a turquoisey quality. Yes. Um, yeah, to his color palette that that kind of sets it apart from other. Films. Yes, especially here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That 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 is what's called my hair, and that's the first color we see when he's looking at when we're looking at the ocean, which is just yeah. a gorgeous shot. Yeah, I do love the repeated like the the back of the ship mm -hmm. sort of shot of the churning sea, but yeah. with the bright blue. It, yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. I, yeah, I can't get enough of it. And like every, every shot in this movie really is just blows me away. I I, I can't can't stop watching. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I, I liked it. Um, okay, good. It was way different from what I thought it was. Uh, that's a, that surprises me. Might be from the advertising though. Like the aver the original advertising for the film was like this is dark and it's almost like a horror film. And it yeah. it featured a lot of footage that didn't appear in the movie. Hmm. Like if you go back and watch the trailers, like there are like full trailers of stuff that's just like not here. Interesting. Which I think BTA did on purpose just to like fuck with people. I don't think I recall seeing any trailers for this movie back then. I remember <laughs> a lot because they were like, this is, this is the movie the follow-up to Terribly Bad. Yeah, they're really pushing it. Yeah. And then when it didn't win like all the stuff, it was yeah. like kind of shocking I think that year. If I recall it was correctly. my favorite movie of the year by a mile. Yeah. I loved it. I wonder what it lost to. But yeah, we could, we could check Probably something stupid. That's, that's <laughs> a safe guess. Yes, probably something stupid. Maybe the 2013 Oscars? Yeah, something, something like that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, should we move on to our next segment? Yeah. Okay, so we'll be back in a minute with Things We've Seen. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Things We've Seen. Uh, this is our every other episode or so segment 
where we talk about movies that we have seen more recently, either at home or in the theaters, generally newer stuff. Um, Charles, what have you seen recently? Anything good? Uh, recently, I saw Alita Battle Angel. Uh, so I was a little perplexed by this movie because the trailers <laughs> didn't look the greatest. It had kind of a strange visual style. Everybody's bothered by Alita's giant eyes. Um, but yeah, it's a bit uncanny. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, but like, I saw some good reviews of it, and I was a bit surprised by that. There was a lot of raving about the action scene, and so I was like, okay, maybe I'll check this out. It does seem like it has an interesting visual style. And I'm definitely glad that I saw it, because, I mean, the reviews were right. The action in this movie is really incredible, and it's it feels very fresh and unique in the way it's done. Um, it's like very fluidly animated. Um, I think that's the best quality of the action. Um, but it's just like really slick and really cool. Um, and, <laughs> that is uh, what I promised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I guess I was surprised by how pseudo gory it was, but it's okay in a PG 13 film because everybody's robots. So you get away with it. Just robot people getting cut up, right? <laughs> um, so that was cool. Um, I think you guys said that because it's by Robert Rodriguez, I shouldn't be surprised by all the gore. Uh, I don't well, think and I, all the good action. Like he's a good director. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. I ended up not being too bothered by the CG. Okay. Uh, the only bad part was when one of the human characters gets put onto a cyborg body um, because his head doesn't change, and you were, you were used to seeing him as a human, so it's like really weird, uncanny to see him attached to. <laughs> a very obviously CG cyborg body. Okay. Whereas with Alita, her head is already, like her whole figure is already CG-ified. So it's fine. So it kind of, yeah, it like works together as a whole. Okay. Right. Um, it's Chris Waltz in this one, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, he's great. Yeah. He, he, he does his thing. Tends um, to be. He gets to be a much warmer character in this one because he's sort of the father figure. Yeah. Um, but there's some funny, like kind of manga-y stuff because it's based on a manga. Mm -hmm. right? you, you can tell like, he is a guy who hunts rogue cyborgs, it turns out. And he's got, like, a big pickaxe with a rocket at the end of it. Okay. As his weapon. <laughs> sure. And, like, it's, it comes as a bit of a surprise because it's not in any of the trailers. Okay. Um, and I was like, wow, this is this is super anime, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, oh, Japan. Now, beyond the action, there's certainly lots of problems with the writing in this movie. Um, it, it has, like, a really terrible romance plot that, like, the, the love interest guy... Um, he feels like he's straight out of a Disney Channel movie. He was just cool. so bad. Um, <laughs> and there's some very obvious, like, dumb plot twists. And the romance is unconvincing. Uh, it was pretty terrible. And I think the ending is one of the most heinously bad endings I've ever seen in a movie. Spoil it. What is it? Uh, I don't know if I want to spoil it because I'm okay, curious fine. how you guys would react to it if no. you saw it. But it's one of those things where they're very obviously <laughs> setting up for a sequel. Okay. Um, which is a bit sad because, like, I like this character enough that I'd like to explore the world uh, and, like, her story more. Um, but it didn't seem like it did well enough to justify another sequel. It's very expensive to make They advertise it weird. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if it's a property that would gain that much attention, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it's one of those endings that kind of takes the rug out from under you. It wow. feels wholly unsatisfying, and it was really bad. So I guess the, the sequel to Alita Battle Angel would be a lot of Battle Angel, right? I, <laughs> um, I've heard surprisingly good things about this movie, because when yeah. I saw the trailer, it, it looks like garbage. 
Um, that hasn't stopped like, you before. But like you, you've said you liked it. I've, I've heard. I've just on like film Twitter. I've I've read people saying it's actually good. Mm-hmm. I've yeah, heard that I well. mean, like and that's surprising. I mean, but I, I like Robert Rodriguez generally as a director. Like I think some of his films are very good. He's made a lot of bad movies, but <laughs> like I who hasn't? Like Desperado, mm-hmm. I thought was cool, and some of the work that he's done with Tarantino is cool, and um, yeah, he's like an interesting guy and an interesting director. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'll qualify it just see it for the action. Okay, that's it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's this has been out a little a little while now. I don't know if it's still in theaters, but it, I'd, I'd like it's to been like it. over a month now. I think yeah. it came out on like Valentine's Day. That sounds right. And they also advertise it as a James Cameron film, and he is like the producer yeah. on it. But it's like, it's, at this point, I'm not sure if that's a like post Avatar. It's like. <laughs> Hey, it's like, the highest a grossing movie. Bad thing? I don't know. Highest grossing movie of all time. Yeah. <laughs> Avatar. Uh, so people liked it, apparently. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. And there's like forward sequels being made or something. Yeah. Well, that are like never going to come out. I, I sure know. hope not. Um, but yeah, this movie kind of flopped and yeah, it doesn't seem like it was advertised well. And I still yeah. want to see more, so I'm a bit sad about that. Yeah. Um, but maybe it'll be one of those like DVD cold hits or something. Yeah, it's too bad. We've had like a couple notable like sci-fi epic flops lately, and I think people are kind of wary of of the genre because it's so expensive and doesn't seem yeah. to hit. Always. They've been so poorly advertised. I think so much of it is about the marketing. Well, some of them are straight up bad, like the Mortal Engines that I saw. Well, right, was... but like Annihilation was one of the best movies Incredible. of the year, right? And, and it was just like, didn't get any of the help that it needed from yeah. the studio. They like abandoned it immediately. Yeah. yeah. And that stinks. Like that really stinks. But Annihilation doesn't feel like these films though, where these are like kind of like world building films. Right, but it, well, in the sense yeah. that they're, just in the sense that they're like expensive sci-fi movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like yeah. there's an audience for that. There's yeah. an audience for Annihilation that, and they didn't find it. And that, like there's probably an audience for Alita yeah. that maybe didn't find it either. And like yeah. that's that's a bummer. You could have cut the trailers better. <coughs> I, I yeah. think I think there was there's some gold in there you could dig out. Yeah, that's too bad. Hmm. Um, but it, it did also mean in his credit that it didn't reveal the best action scenes in the trailer. So we got to that is something to experience those fresh. That, that yeah, is there's some sort of like sport they play in the. Yeah, and it's like yeah. it's, and it's like, like super awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They play motorball, and it's it's red. Well, motorball does sound pretty rad. Whatever yeah. that is, <laughs> it's red as fuck. Yeah, um, I went to the movies too. What'd you say? I saw Gloria Bell. Uh, so this I mentioned this one across when up there, um, but Gloria Bell is the uh, Julian Moore movie. That's really a character study about a woman that's Julian Moore's age, um, that, who is <laughs> who is uh, divorced and meets a man who is also divorced and like they are both surprised that they have you know found love. John Turturro, right? John Turturro plays yeah. the man. Both surprised mm. that they have found love late in life. Um, about halfway through the movie, it turns out that John Totoro is like a super creep and won't leave her alone and kind of an asshole and starts stalking her for a while and she gets to deal with that. Um, but it's mostly a character study about the, the Julia Moore character, the Gloria yeah. Bell character. Um, it's directed by uh, Sebastian Leo, who did A Fantastic Woman a couple of years ago about a, a trans woman living in Chile, I want to say. Um, and he also did a movie called Gloria, which was a uh, Spanish-language version of this movie. So this is technically a remake, um, directed by the same guy who directed the original. Uh, what I, I liked it. Like, this was good. Julianne Moore does Julianne Moore things. She's, a, you know, one of the greatest actors we have currently working, and she's good here, too. What I liked about it is how simple her character was, right? Like, she's, she's a 
conventional woman who has conventional woman problems. She goes to her job every day. She has kids that she has a relationship with, but there are some problems. She gets along with her ex-husband, but isn't that close. Like she meets a guy and it like doesn't go that great. And just like seeing a character, like a, a single woman in her 50s treated with that kind of seriousness and depth was something that really doesn't happen in film. Or if it does, it happens like on a tertiary level, like you have um, the, the mom in boyhood in a similar position. But this is like really about her and what we're supposed to be identifying and suturing into her role in the movie and her position in the movie. And, and it does that successfully. It's similar to A Fantastic Woman in that it's really just a hyper close realist study of a single character and how they live their life throughout this episode in their life. And there's an arc, but it's not a life-changing arc. It's not that she ends up, that she starts like a depressed person that can't do, get anything done and she ends you know, a happy person now. She starts as an, an okay person who has some problems and she ends up with like one less problem at the end <laughs> of the movie. And like that feels triumphant. And like they, they cast that as something that is true and honest in that that's really how life kind of works. Like you make little changes and mm -hmm. those little changes add up to big changes eventually, but not over the course of a couple months, right? Like that it takes time and, and concrete effort and mistakes, and then you get better. And like this movie approaches that truth and that psychological concept uh, very in a very forthright way mm -hmm. um, that, that I really enjoyed. So uh, the, the movie is called uh, Gloria Bell. I don't know if it's going to get that wide of a release. It was certainly advertised a lot at the Alamo where I saw it. <laughs> Outside of there, I don't know. Uh, I'm actually getting a ton of ads for this on Facebook for some reason. Okay. Maybe it's, maybe because, it's because I like the Alamo Draft House. So. That's very possible. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. It's it's a close character study, so like don't expect, you know, like some big giant hook or anything like that. But like the hook is just Julianne Moore being a good actor and she yeah. she is that. Um, and also a really good licensed soundtrack. It has the Gloria song, but other songs as well. Um, so for whatever that's worth. Um, but I liked it a lot. It's Gloria Bell, Sebastian Leo, uh, Julianne Moore. It's a, it's a thumbs up for me. Uh, what did you see, Crossman? Um I saw a weird one. Um, I saw a movie called The Wandering Earth, hey, which is tell me about this. Uh, a Chinese film that came out at the end of last year. Um, it's the second biggest Chinese-made movie at the Chinese box office of all time. Hmm. Made like hundreds of millions of yuan. Um, <laughs> they, it's been brought to the U.S. in kind of limited release, and, and Netflix has bought the rights to it, so it's going to be on, on Netflix. Um, hmm. I'm glad I got to see it in theaters, though. It's, a, it's an apocalypse movie. Um, definitely draws a lot from the Roland Emmerich <laughs> style of filmmaking, um, where like big world-ending events are, are happening. Um, the story of the film, which is all described in the first few minutes, is uh, the <laughs> in the sort of like nearish future, the sun sort of goes into a mode where it's going to expand and destroy the solar system. And that is going to happen eventually. It will happen yeah. eventually. Maybe not that soon. <laughs> yeah. um, the solution that humanity uh, uh, goes for is uh, they decide to move the Earth to another solar system. Oh my Naturally. god! Naturally, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is based on a book, by the way. Um, and they uh, build a bunch of giant engines and. <laughs> All, attach them to earth they're all over, they're just like in all these places on earth and then oh there's like a 
a space station that kind of acts as like a control module, mm -hmm. and they fly the Earth out of the solar system. <laughs> Literally um, spaceship Earth. Yeah, uh, this leads to a, a lot of natural disasters on the Earth. No shit. Um, <laughs> so first, uh, like a bunch when they sort of as they start to leave the <clears throat> normal place of Earth. The Earth gets hit by a bunch of tidal waves because we lose like all the tidal forces. It's all sloshing around. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, the further we get from the sun, the everything freezes. Um, so yes. they so they built all these cities underneath the engines because the engines are yeah. um, fusion engines, and they like uh, they like have a lot of heat that like comes comes yeah. out of them. Um, so the goal is to like get to the next nearest star in like a few generations, and then okay. just kind of like settle into that solar system um okay. the most of the action comes from as the earth uh passes by jupiter the original plan was to kind of like slingshot the earth out of the solar system using jupiter's gravity but they've missed because of jupiter's gravity some of the engines get disrupted and the path of the earth is disrupted such that it's going to fall into jupiter oh, oh no um so, so Jupiter's super pissed. Yeah. <laughs> so there's all this like tectonic action that happens on the Earth, and the main thrust of the film is like a bunch of the engines go out, and the, our our main characters who I haven't even gone to uh, <laughs> um, are sort of thrust into the story where they need to like restart one of the engines. Okay. Assuming that around the Earth there are going to be other people like restarting the, the, the other engines. Yeah. Um, the <clears throat> main characters is this family. There's there's like, um, we're introduced to the father at the beginning of the film, but he kind of leaves and he goes on the space station. Mm -hmm. So we see his like story arc on the space station and then his adopted daughter and, and son and his father on the earth are kind of like dealing with and thrust into like the major plot of, of the film. Um, so the son, just cause he's kind of like a ne'er-do-well character wants to go outside. Like you can go to the surface, but you need like special suits and like a special license to like drive trucks on the surface. Um, cause they use the trucks to like find fuel and like throw it into the reactors. Um, so be because he like leaves the little like reactor city, they get stuck outside while this like tectonic action happens. And then they end up getting hooked up with like some sort of like military styled team that is going to take one of the like a new reactor ignition device to their reactor okay <laughs> and then like throw it in their reactor and like that'll restart the engine great and like the, the most of the plot is around like whether or not these characters can make it on this like frozen wasteland version of the earth okay to the engine and then like throw the ball in the engine and have a restart. And destroy the one run ring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, there's references to like 2001 where there's this like kind of evil um, Robot. AI okay. that has taken over the space <clears throat> state, uh, station has decided that the Earth is lost and is going to try and save just the space station. Got it. And okay. so the father, while everyone is being put to sleep uh, to go into like cryogenic sleep or something is like fighting the AI to like sounds like there's a lot going on here. There's a lot. There's there's <laughs> so much going on. Yeah. This is an epic. Um, it really is. And um one thing that's challenging about the film is the um this their first pass at subtitles don't always are, are not perfect. Um and 
it felt like every other scene for this movie was shot. Um, was shot. How? Where like, like there's this one scene where there's like, they're in like a frozen version of Shanghai, I think. Okay. And they have the reactor, which is this like giant kind of like ball, like metal ball that they've uh-huh. been like dragging. And they're like, we need to like climb this skyscraper, which is like on the side of this like cliff of ice. So they need to like go into the building and like take the ball of the skyscraper and like you're like, oh, this is gonna be like a really intense like climbing action scene. And it's just like, nope, they just like skip ahead. They're, <laughs> they just they're at the top of the building. You're, <laughs> like, work, everybody. you're like, but wait, you just set us up for like a scene where they like climb the tower. Um there are like a bunch of crazy visuals because like you're like it's always like an extreme it's like a rolling ember disaster in like every right. single scene plus they're like passing by jupiter so like the sky is like the well, side jupiter. of jupiter that's yeah. pretty cool and there's like crazy like there are like things that i've never seen in film like some guy is just like really mad at jupiter so he just like has a big gun and he like shoots it at <laughs> jupiter like out of frustration because like like <laughs> like everything keeps like going wrong right um yeah, it's cool. It's like a kooky film. It's an interesting take on to like it action. Yeah, I, 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 it was. It, it's like kind of bonkers. Like it's it like it. wild. Yeah, yeah, it's really really wild. Okay, um, it, it suffers a little bit from like not all the animation being amazing, and like I think it could, like, could have been like more of a through line because like kind of the skipping from like place to place like right. there's just so much going on it's hard to like wrap your hands around like everything right and like some characters are like easy to recognize and follow and then others are just kind of like wallpaper characters but then all sometimes they're really important and we're supposed to like know who they are mm-hmm. and it's like oh we just get lost in like so many characters so many things going on so uh, I thought it was cool it's interesting to see like a non-American take on this genre. Sure. Very rare to see that. Because like, well, only Hollywood has the money. Yeah, yeah. Usually. Exactly. And yeah. now China has all the money. So like in terms of like oh, film production. Big dumb action movies from China like, too. So, yeah. so many American films are produced by the Chinese now. Yeah. So it's interesting to see a Chinese film, Chinese actors, Chinese money, yeah. and like mm-hmm. a big film. Yeah. Um, and no Matt Damon. No Matt, no Matt Damon. No Americans. No yeah. Americans at all. Yeah, it was, you said it was picked up by Netflix, right? Yeah, Netflix bought the distribution rights, so okay. it's, it's going to be on on Netflix. On the Netflix, all and right. So it's it's just like one of those films where it's like this is really kooky and like kind of worth seeing. Like okay, like this is like a like big movie. <laughs> like, cool. And it's yeah, I just like we just like don't really get like non-American blockbusters and yeah, so, yeah, they barely exist. Yeah, so I'd, I'd recommend it. It's it's weird. But, okay, yeah. sweet. I'll check it out. Uh, my pick. You? Yeah. Yep. What okay. have you seen? What was that? What haven't you seen? Okay, so this is a. I, I debated whether or not to like. This is a big one, so I debated whether or not to like spring it early because like okay. everybody has seen this movie. This is one of the ones that is that I've missed. Um, so we're gonna do Terminator Two. Holy oh, shit! shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is crazy. Yeah, I have missed Terminator Two for a very long time. Wow. I saw Terminator One and I wasn't really that into it, so I didn't watch any of the other ones. It's <laughs> another one of those movies where I feel like I don't have to watch it again. Oh, okay, maybe you don't need so to. Yeah, I've seen Terminator so many times. Well, yeah. you can can or cannot watch it again. <laughs> Up to you. <laughs> we'll um, so that that's the one. Terminator Two: Judgment Day with Arnold. Um, Thanks for listening, everybody. Cool. Uh, uh, if you're liking the show, uh, please share it with folks. Uh, we're on, what are we on, iTunes? We're on 
Google Play, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on... We should see if we can get on Patreon. We should see if we can get on Patreon. We yeah. should develop a, a website. Maybe we'll have a website by the time this posts. So this will be retroactively correct. We have a website. <laughs> um, and uh, it, all of your shares make a big difference. Your comments, we appreciate. Um, the likes and things like that are super great. Um, and any reviews you can leave on these various sites also make a really big difference. So please do that as well. And join us next week for Terminator 2.